What is the most used man-made material on earth? You guessed right, it's concrete. Look around, it's everywhere. Sidewalks, driveways, foundations, floors you stand on, and even entire buildings are made out of concrete. So why don't we discuss it more? In each episode of Concrete Logic, we will explore one concrete-related topic with the help from industry professionals that are shaping the future of the trade. We'll talk with suppliers, contractors, architects, engineers, specialists, and even some proponents of competing materials about their views of concrete and their vision of its future. And welcome to another episode of the Concrete Logic Podcast. And today I have Keith Robinson with me. Keith, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a specifications writer, one of the few actual specifications writers compared to the thousands of people edit specs for all those. I, I pity, pity the pool of concrete finishers that have to read the documents because sometimes the documents aren't as well informed as they should be. But yeah, I've been writing spec for 40 years. I create master documents. I write for large clients and basically look after an entire specification team at, at the architectural company I work for. Yeah. And I think you might be the first Canadian I've had on the podcast. Well, we're a rare breed. Yeah. No, we've had some people that are close to Canada. I tease my wife. She's from Michigan or that's like little Canada. Cause I, I used to, I used to go up to Windsor, Canada on, I'm on this side of the country. I know you're on the other side, but I always thought Michigan was kind of part of Canada, especially the way they talk. So yeah, we do too. Yeah. <laughs> we like guys from Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow. Yeah. So Keith, thank you for coming on your, I guess my timing or your timing uh, couldn't have been better. Cause the last podcast we released was about the flooring adhesive. And you sent me a white paper that you wrote that is about floor finishing for concrete as far as flatness. So I, I was like, oh man, this is uncanny timing or Keith, Keith knew when they reach out to me. But uh, so could you tell us a little bit about this, uh, this white paper? And then I'll ask some questions as you go along. Sure. I, I work, I do work for a number of trade associations in Canada to try and align their work practice with specifications. And for several years now, I've been working with the National Floor Covering Association of Canada. They've, they've had issues with floor flatness literally for decades, trying to establish responsibilities for the concrete trade, responsibilities for repair and finishing and preparation of floor surfaces ready for installation of resilient floor coverings, carpets, hardwood, you name it. And it, seems, it, it seemed like it was a, always a battleground. Nobody accounts for a portion of the work that's actually required to create a suitable, I'll call it plenary, like that aspect of flatness that doesn't depend on whether the floor is sloped or whatever. It's the actual gross surface profile of the floor. And we have standards that the concrete finishers use, ASTM E1155 for the dip meter kind of measurements. That's perfect. And that's absolutely ideal for looking for the structural tolerances, but it has limitations so far as the application of floor finishes is concerned because it's measured only on certain lines, either and along a certain length, it doesn't measure to within the perimeter. It doesn't measure across joints. There's a lot of issues for the floor covering person that doesn't address corrections that need to be made in order to have flatness that will actually accept materials. Yeah. And what's, what's the dip meter? Can you explain that to our listeners? Oh, the dip meter. Yeah. It's, it was a instrument that was invented by 
I'm going to get it wrong. Face consultants. It's a really cool machine. Basically, you run it across the floor, tiptoeing it back and forth across along either a 45 degree section across a floor area between structural components. Um, and what it does is it looks at all the waves and the surface topography. Yeah, that's yeah. created by the finishers. They put their trowel across and they, as if you've got a power trowel, if you're one run to direction, we end up with troughs and furrows. If they go 90 degrees, if the concrete is not set up in time, you tend to get, I call them moguls, like on a scope ski hill. Sometimes very rarely we get the opportunity to go 45 degrees back across that and get really good floors. But so much of it is the quality of the, that flatness is all about the concrete going into the project and what the cure, uh, cure time is. Yeah. With the setup time. Yeah. So yeah, there's always, there, there always is conflict with figuring out what the floor flatness is because some concrete guys like ourselves, we, we do that, that meter, the floor flatness, we do that work before the third party comes and we turn that over to, to our client ahead of time and say, Hey, this is what we can come up with because we're uneasy when it comes to a third party guy and who they send out as far as doing the measurement as well. So we try to be in, in front of it. it that way. And it only works if you're being honest with it. So I'm sure what you've seen is there's ways to different, you can take different lines on that floor and have fantastic results. And then you can go to another part of that floor and have terrible results, meaning, meaning that you're not meeting the floor flatness that is required in the specifications. Yeah. And that's allowed so, in the test methodology. You're allowed yeah. up to 70% deviation. And it's, that's the difference between having a hole in the floor or a mountain in the middle of the floor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the, as a concrete guy, our concern is staying away from the conduits that come out of the floor, the columns and things like that, because when you're trying to finish around those things, it's more difficult. It takes more effort to do that. And so that's, uh, I think that's the reason why we, sometimes you take advantage of the, of those ways that you can take those measurements to yeah. stay away from those things. And I think it's all fair. And I think when you're working with, I mean, face it, concrete is liquid stone. <laughs> it's going to do what it's want, it wants to do. And you're trying to get it as close to a reasonable finish as you can. You've got to spend some time with it. If you don't spend the time, then you get a really horrible job or you spend a bit more time and you get an all right job. Let's not take away the skill level of the, of good concrete finishers because it's hard work. I did that for one summer. I know what it's like pushing around concrete and it's hard, heavy work. And that's standard. As you said, you can run it at 90 degrees to the floor. You can run it 45 degrees across the floor. It's not like in the old days with the old style straight edge measurement set up on a level and randomly placing it somewhere on the floor. You could really cheat that test, but the, I think the, the current E1155 gives a really good indicator of what the floor condition is along those lines of measurement. And so that's where what we're talking about along the lines of measurement. It doesn't really give you an idea of what the floor is like all over. And I think that's appropriate. Again, the measurement is made within three days of concrete placement, concrete as it sets up, it's absorbing water, sun shining on it. If there's not proper shading, if you've got a low water mix, it's, it starts to already start to curl. You start to get that, the edges pulling up. And of course, as it curls, it also wrinkles up in the middle, like a shrinking apple kind of thing. There's a lot of things that happen with concrete after three days as well. The curing regime that's set up by the, by either the concrete finisher or the general contractor up here in Canada, it's usually the general contractor looks after the curing. Oh, wow. Um, 
and they, it, we're dealing with freezing conditions and horrible things for concrete. But. So what, so what do you normally see up there when, that's different from down here, as far as the general contractor curing the concrete, what do they normally cure? What they're going to do is they're going to go for the highest, earliest strength gain concrete mix they can find. They're going to try to attempt to wet cure it for maybe two days. If we're lucky, they'll try to keep it covered for as long as possible, but you got to keep the building moving. There's a lot of things for weather that, that really don't help that surface condition of concrete as the building ages. And of course, temporary heat, it's a whole lot cheaper not to heat a construction site than it is to put up plastic sheets and try to heat, not just that enclosed area, but because those sheets, they leak like crazy, all the rest of the outdoors as well. So also not very sustainable. So there's a lot of things that happen to concrete and that's what the National Floor Covering Association was trying to address, that there's more to flatness than just that, that I'll call it the wet finishing. You're dealing with plastic concrete and pushing it around. And by the time then the floor cover, the floor, they call it the floor covering installer comes on site, could be six months, eight months. That slab could have been cold for five or six months, which of course traps any moisture in the slab. So then all of a sudden you throw heat on the slab and you get this, mm. all the moisture that gets driven out of the slab, the slab is cold. You get condensation on the surface. That's, that's just horrible. And it's, I don't know what you're talking about. It's 28 days. It's concrete strength is fine. But we tend to ignore the fact that, yeah, no, there's other factors that affect the quality of that concrete slab, all of which actually changes over time. It probably settles down after about nine months to a year, the most amount of change on the surface of that slab. So you can actually lose up to 50% of that flatness and levelness that the concrete finisher worked so hard to achieve. So on the day that you measure it, you could get a really, say we got a really flat floor using, using conventional methods, you got FF30. That's an amazing floor. And that'll probably do for almost anything you want to apply to it. But after six months of those kind of curing conditions, you might be lucky to have an FF15, which I think any, sorry, my wife is just waving me goodbye. <laughs> Uh, no worries. <laughs> no worries. At FF15, I don't think there's, I don't think there's a concrete finisher alive that would accept that as representative of their work. And it's not what they work so hard to achieve. No. So there was, there's always this differential coming up and we have clients that I work for that say, I want dead flat floors. I've got a hospital operating room. I've got laboratories. I've got a high stack warehouse. You've got to specify FF50, FF100. And I'm like, oh. How are we going to get that and maintain mm. that? And I think most specifiers, they don't understand what it takes. So we just, and I'll say we're a guilty party to all of this because we'll just say, oh yeah, we want a super flat floor. Let's put in a requirement for FF50, sounding like we know what we're talking about. No, it just doesn't work that way because of course, the higher you get on your FF, the greater that percentage change is going to be over the months. So by the time you get to FF100, which is special concrete mix, special equipment for placing, special finishing, long-term curing, permanent heat on within, on, on top of that concrete slab, you name it. It still results in upwards of 70% of that flatness being retained after six to nine months, which is why, of course, I have a lot of people putting their, yeah, I want to put in that shrinkage compensating admixture. Yeah. So that only delays the problem. It doesn't actually solve the problem. Yeah.
if you don't look after all the rest of the stuff. So we figured out that there's something else that needs to be done because currently what happens is that flooring installer is being made responsible to prepare them because it's floor preparation to fix all of this new topography that happens on the floor that happened after the concrete was actually accepted that three-day measurement mark. Well, flooring installers don't have the equipment. It hasn't been included in the price. They're being made to pay for stuff that they have no control over, right? GC has control over the condition of the floor up from the time that the concrete finisher leaves the site up until the time that the flooring installer comes on site. A lot of things can happen to the slab and how do you account for that in, in, in the specification? How do you account for that in construction budget? How do you account for that in your bid? It's an issue. It was a huge issue. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we solve that? I don't even know the answer. Ah. It's, I'll tell you, in Canada, we have something called the Red Seal Contractors Program. It's a form of standardized apprenticeship for different trades. And this, there's a Red Seal Program for concrete finishers. It, talk, and it talks about all the things that concrete finishers can do mm -hmm. from placing and leveling and curing of concrete. The repair and remediation of concrete surfaces after placement, uh. right? They also look after application of resinous coatings and self-leveling toppings and all sorts of other things. It's all built into that particular trade definition. And I was talking to some representatives from Concrete Canada. They're one of the associations that, that represents floor finishers. And they said, Keith, you're missing something entirely. You've got all that wet finishing well looked after. You understand that's good for you, but you're missing a component of the trade. It's never specified. And when the GC goes out and says, okay, we've got to fix the floor, they all get called. They go in and they've got grinders. Yeah. <clears throat> they've got patch and repair materials. They go in and they basically say it's, we call it dry finishing. So they'll go in with the grinders and they'll go do like a skip grind across the floor. Yeah. Knock off all the high points. And it might be only a 16th or an eighth of an inch, one and a half, maybe two, three millimeters, which doesn't affect the structural quality of the slab. And then if there's any drastically low areas, they'll just use, use a wide trowel and screed it between two high points to, to flatten everything out. And it's like, wow, how do I specify that? And they said, good thing to do is to start off with a cash allowance. Uh, that's brilliant. I remember reading in the American Concrete Institute, they actually say about coordinating tolerances between all that division three concrete work and all those division nine flooring works. And they said, Mr. Engineer or Mr. Architect, you really should include a cash allowance to correct those floor surfaces. Yeah. And it's like, oh, wow, <laughs> it's been in front of my face for 20 years. There's a standard that affects the installation of resilient sheet floors. ASTM F710 about surface preparation that says, oh yeah, you might have to mechanically prepare those floor surfaces to bring it into a flatness acceptable to the application of floor finishes. That's been, uh, by the way, Dean Kraft, one of your previous speakers, he sits on that committee and, we're, and I'm talking to him and he says, oh my God, Keith, <laughs> I think we've got it all wrong in the standard. <laughs> he says, that's brilliant. So what do you propose? I said, first off, we've got to bring back a straight edge measurement because uh -huh. a straight edge is the only thing that really can pick up those surface deviations necessary 
to prevent material runoff. Like when you're trying to place rigid square materials on a floor and you've got a hump in the middle of the floor, well, you can't cut and trim all those yeah. piles to make it fit, to fit around those lumps and humps. You just create a bigger problem than what you started with. So there's this, all of a sudden it's like, it was implied in the standard and then it's like nobody followed up on it. It's like, oh my gosh, there's your solution. And the best way to measure that is a randomly placed straight edge. If you can imagine taking a straight edge and pushing it around the floor in front of you, basically, and when you find a high point, you go, it go, the straight edge goes up, it comes back down again. You can actually measure those high point areas. You can find the same thing with more technical tools like laser scanners. And you, some guys use string lines and plumb bobs to lay out a grid across the floor. But however it's done, you can get a really good representation of how much that floor surface has changed over time. Cash allowance is appropriate because you only have to spend as much as needed or more because if the concrete wasn't good to start with, then you've got more that you have to expend for your cash allowance to prepare that floor. But it comes down to this missing trade scope. Yeah. So easy to repair, so easy to address, and we've missed it. And yet there's skilled workers out there that do that for a living all the time. Yeah. There's, there's actually, and I, I'm sure some people are listening to this and they're like, there's no way there's people out there that are putting aside an allowance to fix floor flatness, but uh, there is a large retailer. I don't want to say their name, but large retailer out there that built, builds big warehouses and they actually do that. And that was my first, first time that I was on a project that had that allowance and they had that trade, that middle ground, they had them planned in the, in the schedule which I personally thought was, was shocking. I was like, oh, you're planning on us not pr providing what you need, but uh, the, yeah, the, the floor flatness, they do have an allowance, but they still, they still expect a high, Initial. high quality yeah, finish. So they have an allowance. And then the, our client, they, they were sharing with us that they were one of the GCs that used the allowance the least across the country. So they wanted to make sure we delivered a high quality product, even though they did have this allowance to do the, uh, the grinding of the floor, they wanted to make sure we'd still delivered a high quality product. And so they wouldn't have to use that allowance as much. Yeah. And I've written conditions that talk to that as well. It basically says, this is not meant to repair work. This is not to say that, oh yeah, we're going to be, we're going to be fixing up the floor after the fact anyway, so we'll just slot the concrete down and do what we can do. We don't have to spend the time. No, you need a good quality floor to start with. I'll say minimum FF 25, better yet FF 30. So we're still pushing that what's reasonably expected from using standard tools and, and materials. I should also say American Society of Concrete Contractors also had a position paper. Yeah. Yeah, that's we got. They, we have all kinds of position papers. I think there's, oh, what, I know. there's no, 36 of them. I like them. I like them too. They're great. It's, it's, it's every time I have a problem with concrete, let's see what ASCC says. Their position paper number six, so it was an early one, says, hey, you should be doing something about this and coordinating between division three and division nine. And oh, by the way, you the way you guys measure things in division nine is different than the way we measure in division three. So you need to, basically the position paper said, flooring installers need to be recognized for their tolerances. They're different. They're a lot tighter. They are equivalent to FF50 to FF100 many times. But again, that goes back to this new position paper, best practice for straight edge measurement. 
it sets up the responsibility to the general contractor to turn over an appropriate floor for the floor covering installers. It recognizes the good work that the concrete finishers did. It brings in an otherwise unrecognized portion of the construction finishing trade that is always brought in to, to repair floors at huge expense because it's usually an extra to the project that the owner doesn't want to pay for because they expect that perfection, that level of FF50 or FF35 that they're not getting and they're pointing fingers. Everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else. The concrete finisher, I did my job. The floor covering guy saying it's not my responsibility. GC going, I don't know what happened here because you didn't control the conditions. <laughs> And everybody not really understanding what the concrete is, it's a beast. <laughs> it has a mind of its own and it will do what it will do. You can place concrete one day, it'll behave perfectly. The next day, it's a wet, cloudy, overcast day. The guy on the end of the mix truck, he forgets, the, oh yeah, we, yesterday we added in a lot of water because we had a lot of evaporation. Today, it, he forgets not to put in so much water because he did the same things he did yesterday. Now we have a permanently wet slab. There are issues all over the place. The trades, they, they're unaware, I would say, of all of the physics that goes into making concrete. And there's no expectation that they should understand the physics, but we can certainly address those outcomes within the project documents and make sure that the owner pays a fair price for the work. We have to get the owners to agree to, of course, the cash allowance in the first place. Large clients, yeah, like your warehouse example, Without saying a name, we do a lot of warehouse work for a particularly large retail outlet that pretty much dominates everywhere in the world. And yeah, they recognize that need for surface correction. They also recognize the need for good work at the outset. It's, it works well when you have communication between all the trades. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that the thing too. Have division three, talk to division nine. Division nine says, this is what we need. And division three still will say, Oh, that's what you need. Here's what we can do for you. Rather than don't blame me, man. I was good when on my day. Yeah, no, it definitely starts at, starts with the owner and then it, it has to trickle down all the way down owners, reps and design team. Everybody's gotta be on the same page. That's that one project I was talking about. That, that was probably the best pre-poor meeting I've ever attended. It was after being in, in the industry two decades plus. That was the one I actually felt was worth my time well, for the everybody. Fact you even had a pre-poor meeting, right? Yeah. But I felt everybody was engaged and it started with the owner's rep. He, he drove that meeting versus typically we, as a concrete contractor, we're the one that initiates the meeting. We're the one that drives the meeting. We're the ones that provides meeting minutes, the agenda, everything, and everyone just falls along and we're, I don't feel like everyone's engaged, but when it came from the owner's rep, everybody was paying attention. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> this is what I expect. This is what y'all are going to do. This is how it's all going to happen. And so everyone knew it, that, that participated in that meeting, knew what to, uh, what we all had to deliver. Yeah. So that's the, 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 uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. And then we'll jump to the straight edge thing. Cause it, you said you were getting some pushback on that. Oh, yeah. And I'll just say that's one thing the National Floor Covering Association recognized when we were working on harmonizing how self-levelers were, were installed, where they came in and who was responsible. 
the big realization was the coordination wasn't happening. So they actually wrote for specifications, a coordination section that actually does exactly what you just described, brings the concrete people, all of the people, the former people, the mix, the concrete mix company, the reinforcing steel guys, the finishers, anybody that has to put conduit or anything else in the floor or piping, brings them all together for that first meeting and gets everybody to agree and talk about what they're going to do in the future. But yeah, that's, and if any of the listeners want to see that document, we I'll send you a link. It's a really good document and it solves a lot of those coordination issues. Yeah, no, that'd be good. The, so the straight edge, let's couple things. Let's talk about when you're specifying for a job that would require this coordination between the flooring and the concrete contractor. What is your, what's your curing expectation? What do you specify in there? What's best practice? Yeah, I have a really large curing specification to start with. It's eight or nine pages long. It sounds like- not just spray chemical cure on it? It's not just spray chemical cure on it. No, that's the last (laughs) thing. Although if it's a part of a plan, we'll look at it, but you can't beat wet curing. Let's face it. You can't beat temperature control of that slab. If you allow that slab to cool off to below freezing, even though it's attained its strength, you still have a lot of free water within the slab and it tends to expand as it goes below freezing point. And by the time you reach zero degrees Fahrenheit minus 18 in my world, ice starts to expand. <laughs> it does very bad things to concrete, which just upsets everything. So yeah, the curing plan has to be detailed. Most consultants, most engineers don't really understand the curing aspect. Once they have strength, that's good. And structurally, that's fine. Uh, But it doesn't recognize any of the work that has to be done later for finishing. So So is it what cure seven? So I've seen seven days, 14 days, days, seven days. Yeah. So what cure seven days instead of three check, check, check moisture emissions from the concrete. Mm -hmm. There are standards for that. They're oftentimes used for flooring. It's a whole different topic. It's about the floors and everything else and appropriate measurements. There are a lot of really good standards for checking that how the concrete is actually releasing all of that mixed water during progress of, of the cure period, which can be three to four months. It's more than the 28 day strength gain that the most of us are dealing with when it gets cold, say at freezing point just above freezing point, say 40 degrees Fahrenheit, five degrees ish Celsius, concrete just stops doing what it does naturally. It, it, any strength gain, residual strength gain ends until it warms up again. So there's a lot of things. So keeping the, keeping covers on concrete, getting as much temporary heat as possible, ways to retain heat on the concrete keeping the, keeping weather off the concrete, keep the snow and the ice and the rain off your concrete, because that delays all of these things. There's so many things that affect concrete and having a good concrete cure plan. I'm not expecting the concrete to be protected from day one until the very end, but if we can at least extend that protection after the seven day wet cure to 14 days, maybe 21 days of protection, concrete has had a chance to actually mature. And as it matures, there's less risk of all these other 
downstream effects on the concrete slab. Yeah. So as I say, most engineers, architects, they'll just refer to some concrete standard, cure in accordance with blah, blah, blah. Con uh, contractor says, I've got a top out party I want to get to, three-day floor slab pour, get on with it, finish fast. And fast is, of course, the biggest thing that destroys concrete quality. So, Yeah. Yeah, usually it's pushed by the client's schedule too. So trying to meet that or exceed that. And then when do you do measurement, floor measurement? Start measurements. Uh, the GC should be measuring the progress of the of how the floor is changing once once they have access to the floor. So you have that initial three-day measurement from the concrete trade. Maybe they measure the floor two months, three months after, see if how much it is changing. The rate of change can dictate we got a problem or we don't got a problem. And of course, the next point of check would be, you know, at least a month before you're expecting your concrete installer to go on site or your floor covering installer to go on site, because if there are any preparation methods required to correct that slab to a condition mm. that the floor installer will accept, it's got to be done. And all the curing, all those materials that you apply to that slab have to be cured as well before the flooring material goes on. So a month before, two months before, we're either good to go, A-OK, -okay, or, oh, heck, I guess we're going to have to dip into that cash allowance to make things happen. Yeah. Have you seen any of the internal curing products out there? Has that succeeded in lieu of the wet curing? I've had one project where we used an internal cured concrete mix design. Uh-huh. It was for a large industrial slab in a manufacturing facility. It was amazing. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 It, it was like, it was the magic cure. Yeah. So internal concrete cure, it, it addresses a lot of those issues. I, I, again, if you have issues with not maintaining temperature and protection after the fact, internal curing can have just as many problems. That's what I was getting money for it. But the fact that the internal curing has its own moisture source. I got you. It, yeah, it, so it, yeah, so it, it can take the place of wet cure, but we still need to take care of the ambient air around the concrete is what you're correct. saying. Yeah. I got you. Huh. And then you're measuring the measurement. You, I know the white paper that you sent me, you said that people weren't excited about it because you were talking about the straight edge and everything, but you mentioned too, you were okay with the 3d, the 3d scanning, which we, we do, we utilize. And we actually, uh, that project I was talking about before was the first time we used it. And it shows everything. You got to be prepared to see everything. Yeah, sometimes it's overwhelming for clients to see everything. They don't know what to do with it. But the, like you're saying, the re remediation guys that come in before the flooring guy or whatever is being done after afterwards, they, you, I, at least in in my experience, they utilize that data. They knew where the high spots, low spots were and everything like that. Yeah. It's kind of like a cut and fill exercise at that point. Yeah. Um, and again, if the concrete is being put down with care and attention, we're usually talking a couple of millimeters of correction. It's not a big deal and it's yeah. not pointing fingers at anybody. It's just work that's necessarily is, is necessary to be done. Always has been, we've just missed it, which is why people get upset. And that goes back to the straight edge because a lot of concrete finishers, they fought long and hard to get 
recognition of this new, the new now, which is now 25, 30 years old, ASTM E1155, or the other one for the surface waviness index, FFFL and surface waviness, same machine, same little bot measures both. And of course, they're, they don't want to go back to a straight edge measurement. Of course, everybody thinks it is that old fashioned straight edge measurement, which really was designed to show the floor to its best advantage. It really was the pig's ear silk purse kind of comparison. You take the measurement in one place in this one place, and it looks beautiful everywhere else. It can look like the Sahara desert full of sand dunes. Doesn't matter. So long as it's perfect in that one location that you place the measurement stick. That's not what we're advocating here. And I, and so one of the things I'm trying to encourage concrete finishers to do before they say, we don't want no straight edge. And that's the words we hear is <laughs> read, read the new procedure. It's best practice. It really does mimic exactly what the 3d laser scanner provides. It just does it with really basic tools. So you can do it. You don't want to be on your hands and knees with a 10 foot straight edge in front of you covering. Yeah. A hundred thousand square foot warehouse yeah. lasers are really good for that. You have a smaller area, a couple thousand square feet. The straight edge is really practical, really easy to use. Finds all the same dips and, and hills. Take a piece of chalk. You just draw where those high points are. And then the, the dry finisher, if you, if that's what I've been calling the concrete dry finisher goes in with their, the grinding machines, skip, skip bumps, everything off, planes, the surface, whatever term you want to use. And it's very easy to convert not bad floor into a almost perfect floor. That's ideal for the floor covering people. They apply their own skin coats and things like that to do what they need to do to enhance their surface bond. And everybody goes home happy. Yeah. That's the thing about it is once you recognize the missing component work, it's slap yourself on the forehead. I'm getting a very flat forehead these days, by the way, <laughs> all the time, hit myself on the forehead. It's crazy. It just made it so obvious what needed to be done. And it's one of those things where cooperation between division three, division nine has come up with a solution that's addresses all of the problems. We'll find some new problems, no doubt, but it addresses the common problems that we're currently encountering and stops making people scapegoats for the quality that, that everybody expects. Yeah. No, I think that's a good summary of of what we're talking today. So I think it's a good spot for us to end today, Keith. If folks want to reach out to you, what's the best way? Best way is my, the company I work for is Dialogue. It's a architectural engineering urban planning company in Canada. My email address is krobinson at dialoguedesign.ca. And I'll send you that link so you can include that on the, on the bio. Yeah, on your website. And I'll also send you along a couple of links to the National Floor Covering Association, where the white paper is stored. It's free to download. It's one of the documents that don't have on a paywall because it's kind of like Volvo's seatbelt. Why patent something that's going to save everybody's lives? Um, yeah. And I'll also no. send you a, a link to the other coordination documents. So there's a couple of really good documents there that'll help everybody out. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, we'll share that with everybody and then on our newsletter as well <clears throat> so that uh, hopefully we can get this uh, be uh, proactive again. Seems to be a common theme on this podcast, being proactive. But, uh, I hope when everybody works together. <laughs> yeah. All right, Keith, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, Seth. And that concludes another episode of the Concrete Logic Podcast. 
I hope you got some value out of that episode and learned a thing or two. If you did, visit our website, ConcreteLogicPodcast.com. Click on the Show Support tab and learn how you could be listed as a producer of an episode. Again, that's ConcreteLogicPodcast.com. Click on Show Support tab to learn how you can support the show. And as always, Mike Dutton will take us out. Put some diesel in the lights and wait till the trucks roll up. And this ain't how most folks live their lives. Dripping in sweat, working overtime. But while they're tying their ties for their nine to fives, we're out here changing these skylines with love.